This episode of Commentary, Trek Stars, is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hi, this is Robert Duncan McNeil, also known as Tom Paris from Star Trek Voyager. You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. Today we're starting our new series, which will look at Iris Stephen Bear's work as a showrunner. And today we're going to be looking at his work on Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And we're joined by a very special guest, Larry Nemechek. How's it going, Larry? Hey guys, it's great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, this will be fun. It, 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 it will be. Now... For those people who don't know who Larry is, I don't know how anyone listening. If you to this don't show. know, you're not listening to <laughs> yeah, this. I just I don't I don't even know what to that do would with be. You. Really, con- I mean, maybe they just bumbled into it. Maybe it was a typo and they ended but up. You on obviously our site. haven't heard the show about uh, um, Nick the day, Myers the day uh, after the day after. Yeah, so Larry is of course uh, the writer of the Star Trek: The Next Generation Companion and the the new book Stellar Cartography, and he is also the uh, I don't know, what would you say the 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 ruler of Trekland? What, what, <laughs> well, for a while, I'd said the mayor of Trekland. The mayor of Trekland. Yeah, there yeah. you go. So it, Larry is also the uh, actor portraying Doctor McCoy on Star Trek Continues. Oh yeah. So which That's the new episode? Be- you guys just shot the second episode, right? We just shot number two. And we are planning uh, – we we have a tentative date set. I think it just needs to lock in with everybody. But we're supposed to be shooting the third one in March and um, hopefully even having that out by uh, maybe as early as uh, as June if, if things hold up. So that would be a really fast turnaround. But then they're turning these around pretty fast because uh, Vic Mignogna, who's kind of the, the producer and plays Kirk and the driving force, he keeps it kind of lean and mean and he's a – He's a type A personality, as we would say, <laughs> and the team that he has put together. So everybody, everybody uh, keeps it close to the vest, and it's and it, they're turned around pretty fast. So yeah, well, it's got to be hard to get. Like, I mean, the the biggest thing must be just scheduling. You know, getting everyone to to go down there. You know, at at, at the same time and everything like that. Mm-hmm. But well, uh, it's we've kind of wandered into it, um, and people come from all different situations too. Some people have open schedules. Some people have day jobs, and they do their acting on the side or whatever. So people have to align. Some people, are, you know, use their vacation time to come, and much less the crew. You know, the cast, much less the crew. Right. Um, yeah. Some of them are college kids. Some of our little stars that pop up on the Facebook and the website and everything. And uh, but and we have professionals too that have to arrange their time and come. But um, and the schedule is two, maybe three shows a year, and nobody wants to be there in the summer. So, so fall, spring are kind of good times. So yeah, so that's yeah, it's been exciting. Cool. As we said before, today's episode is going to deal with Iris Stephen Bear's work on Star Trek. Uh, just just to get this out front there for for anyone who was unaware or whatever, I personally think that Iris Stephen Bear is the best showrunner that Star Trek has ever had, and uh, one of the the finest writers of the series as well. 
Um, do you two agree with that? One of the best showrunners that Star Trek has ever had as a showrunner. As a showrunner. Because you've said that Ronald D. Moore yes. okay, fine. is the best human being on Earth. Okay, yes. And he can <laughs> raise the dead with his kiss. Yes, okay. I, 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 but as far and as... And the guys, tell me what you really think. <laughs> I think that Iris Stephen Bear is a better showrunner than Ronald D. Moore. Okay, fair enough. And uh, Larry, I know that you're, you're very fond of, of Iris Stephen Bear as well. Um, the commentary for... For Star Trek Six, that you did with him is the best. Thing, <laughs> oh my God. The best thing ever. <laughs> you know, I have to go back and listen to that. I haven't listened to that in a long time because it was just a just a total sidebar. That was interesting because that go round they were looking for. Um, it hadn't been that many years since they'd done the uh, the DVD editions, and all of a sudden here Blu-ray was you know hip and in, and they had to have a whole new set of. Um, of bonus features, and of course they needed to do them as cheap as possible, and audios are a good way to do that. And they were trying, they were the outside the box things, people who necessarily didn't work on those movies, you know, but were still in the Trek family somewhere to talk. And so, you know, Bob and, and Alex, uh, Bob Orsi and Alex Kurtzman talked about one. Um, anyway, so I, you know, I, they asked me, some, I think four was gone, and Wrath of Khan and four were gone, and I had my pick of the other four. And I said, well, let's do six. And they said, okay, we're looking for people to bring in. And nobody had really reached out to Ira at that point. Um, oh and I said, oh, I know somebody who'd be good. And, and I asked him, and he said, sure. And what I didn't realize until we sat down was how many of the, how many of the guys and how many of the cast in Star Trek VI they wound up using on DS9. Yeah. Not, yeah. not for great master plan, but just the coincidence. And Ira has this that incredible memory for knowing all these you know, like wacky doodle, you know, independent John Cassavetes type indie movies from the sixties. And he's you know, he's like, Oh yeah, you think Brock Peters was good here and in DS nine, you should have seen him as that uh as that hippie truck driver biker guy. <laughs> and you know, I mean I'm totally making this up, but that's what he would pull out these references. You know, he had that great scene in uh in uh, Roger Corman's, you know, I was a teenage old man or something, <laughs> you know. But it was, he'd, he'd pull that stuff out of his butt, and it was just like I'd just sit there and go, okay. And then he would, he would tweak me, and then I would tweak him back. And it, but it was all right off the bat, as I remember. He started off talking, well, it's really nice that you dressed up for our audio session today in these uniforms. Yeah, so. he, he, does that. he did that on his 4400 commentaries, too. He'd be like, yeah. I'm sitting here in, in a hot tub watching this thing, and – I'm surrounded by beautiful women or whatever, you know, and then he would just keep it going, you know, he wouldn't like break, break the illusion at all. It, that's great. He's Yes, hand me another one, honey. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So Iris Stephen Bear got his start as a uh, writer on The Next Generation during season three, but you were just telling us uh, before we got started that he was actually approached during season two. Yeah, I was just going back to this first interview that I did with Ira in 93. So this has been, oh my God, that means it's been, oh, I'm not even going to say it. Oh, April 1st, 93. No fooling. Wow. He had worked on two or three shows. Uh, he wrote a script for Brent Maverick and uh, Jessica Novak. And then he worked three years on the TV version of Fame, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting now when you think of him as writing. And then he was on a quirky little – one of those superhero-type shows in the 60s, uh, quirky shows called Once a Hero that got canceled. Uh, and he was – he told me the story of how they found that it was canceled. He was all in the middle of hashing out this story and fighting with writers. And they, it was kind of like, okay, uh, you know, clean out your desk. It's not worth it anymore. <laughs> Leave. And they're like, ah. It's kind of like, uh, yeah. 
But uh, he hadn't. He was an original series fan, which is kind of obvious. But he had never seen Next Generation. Oh, oh, okay. Here it is. So he, yeah, they, they, had, Maury Hurley had him come in second season. Paramount execs reached out to him. They had a lunch meeting. He says it's very nice, very pleasant. Uh, but he explained the parameters working on the show, and it just did not sound like the thing I wanted to do at the time. Even though my sister said, "Do it, do it, do it. It's Star Trek. Do it." <laughs> and they were old fans. And uh, he didn't like the third season of the original series and was disappointed. And you know, he never he he watched the first run, but he was not a rerun fan because he was off uh, getting his career together. And uh, anyway, so came in and um, and he said no, thank you. But then later on, uh, Michael Wagner was there. Started off, he left uh, the day before they started shooting. Pillar came in and 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 Michael reached out to some of his friends to come in and help me and. Uh, um, uh, that's what he did, and got it. He said his first his uh, on third season of Next Gen, and his first episode that he what they were working on was the um, the vengeance factor, but the first script that he really uh, worked on was the defector. The defector. He wrote a he rewrote a couple of scenes in a defector. So which is what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of get blended in. People see the writing credits on all you know, for everybody. People see the writing credits on the shows. And sometimes that's exactly what it was, and sometimes even whether it's got one name or it's got six, <laughs> like History's Enterprise, and that kind of reflects reality. But there's sometimes when people don't take credit, and it's not because you ruined my work, take my name off the credits. <laughs> it's not even about that. A lot of times the showrunners uh, do huge rewrites and don't stick their names on the credits, even though they're totally entitled to, entitled to because that's just their job. And because maybe they're trying to help a new writer out and give them a solo credit. Because, you know, the more names on a script, the more they divvy up the residuals. Yeah. yeah no, like, I, our, like our Voyager script, I was very glad for it to finally be made and just to have, and for them to keep our names on it. But it was shared like, you know, there's one sixth of all the residuals are split up. You know, my, my wife and I getting a sixth apiece or something. So, yeah. 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 I, I think it was, it was a bear who I, I read somewhere at some point saying like, you know, as a showrunner, you can pretty much expect to do a pass on, on every single script, no matter what, you know, it's kind of like you polish it right before it gets made, which makes perfect sense. I mean, especially since you're kind of overseeing the show on the whole and you need it to be consistent. And right. was, wasn't he pretty much a pillar's right hand man, um, during that, that third season? Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, they'd known each other. They'd gone through the mill before, um, and it was a rough time, and, and is now is out in public a little bit better. Uh, what a rough time! We all knew the third season was a rough anyway because of the situation that he came in late. They they were, you know, Hurley had left. They hired Michael Wagner. He left. <clears throat> Pillar came in. They're all like they keep handing the keys to the next guy and jumping out of the car, kind of a thing. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and Michael came in with about three or four shows down already. But he had written uh, the Nana, he had written Instance of Command and and looked like he got it off the bat, and um, but then everything was they were in the the monster of, of production they were just never it took them half a year all those one title you know the defector the hunted the all those the shows <laughs> um, he was like behind and they were just barely getting him out the door and Ira was. They were like bailing out the boat as fast as they could stay afloat, and it wasn't until they got to about mid. And yesterday's Enterprise was supposed to be the biggest cluster of all, and they just thought it was going to be, you know, doomed. Although it was kind of it was such a cool idea, and Ira talks about how they came in on Thanksgiving weekend, and nobody was pissed, and they all just took an act 
because Guy uh, Whoopi's schedule it had been bumped up a week in a slot because of her schedule to have her, which meant they had to hurry up and redo it, which meant that they had to do it over Thanksgiving. They all took an act and went home and wrote it and then came back and then they melded the acts together, which is why there's like 5,000 names on that one. Mm-hmm. And it's the staff names. But they all just like, oh my god, this is going to be the biggest you know, ever. And it wasn't. It was like one of the classics. Yeah. And, Probably uh, the best episode up until that point. Yeah. And uh, and they had one scene where everybody died on screen, and they they cut all the deaths for the budget except for uh, Garrett's. They were going to have Data hmm. die on screen and Jordy die on screen there at the, when the sea is going down, hmm. and um, and everything. But that's one of his you know memory. I'm just going back looking through this interview that that's uh, and and the downside, which I'm glad that he's been out on on record and on camera talking about what a rough year that was and how Michael had worked on staff but hadn't showrun really or had the experience of dealing with personalities and professionals and how he was a little blunt with the staff and some of the old ones that were around were offended by that and people mm-hmm. left and then you know Ron was a Ron was like new boy he was a oh wow I they're paying me to write and I get to write on Star Trek I mean it was really the happy dappy I remember meeting him very like um Open the door, and this is our newest writer, Ron Moore. And he just kind of looked up from his desk, like you know, like that little mousy. Oh hi, I'm just thrilled to be here. Kind of look, and I'm like waving, going, I'm just thrilled to be taking a tour. And we kind of like, you know, five seconds, and that's it's, it's kind of funny. Years later, we were laughing about that, but um, as if he remembered that at the moment. But yeah, that was uh, that third season was like the Ira was Michael's, you know, wingman. And it was rough on, as he talks about on the DVD, on the Blu-ray now, that it was really rough on him. And he's like, guys, I can't, this is, I've enjoyed as much as this as I can stand. But um, and the, I think the, the straw that broke the camel's back was all the stuff about Sarek and how they were arguing with, you know, Rick about uh, can, <laughs> the whole thing of, can Sarek's son be named Spock or can we only just say his son? I mean, those kinds of things in the moment, oh my God. you know, at the time. <laughs> It's like, no, we're not ready. We're not going to get, you know, are we going to like lay this down now? Yes, yes. Come on. How many? We're going to say that Sarek had other sons besides Spock? I mean, we had Sarek, but um, I mean, a Cybok. But he's like, do you really want to go there? Do you really want to that Picard met Cybok? What? Or somebody, you know, our third one that we never mentioned? Or, you know, whatever. And, and uh, so, you know, it wound up being the way it was. But, um, but, it, but I was starting to say was his first show that he really worked on was he did a couple of rewrite scenes in The Defector. And uh, I just re- finding this, found this quote from the thing. He says, Michael said, you need to do this and this and this and that. And it was like I was sitting in my office thinking, why am I here? What am I trying to do? I- I'm a big science fiction fan. I like Philip K. Dick and Thomas Dish, Shepard Ballard. But I don't read Heinlein. I don't read Clark. I don't read Asimov. I don't read any of the guys that anyone here seems to. It's not my thing. Why am I doing through here? And I went through this total crisis of confidence whether I was even going to be able to do this thing. But yeah, Ron's script was really, really good, and, and um, we killed the guy, the guy that really wasn't originally supposed to die. And um, he said there was a scene between Data and the Defector, the, the Admiral, in the holodeck of the Romulus scenes. That whole sequence was something I worked on. First one I remember showing to Rick outside of the, outside of the fire towers of Galgathon, and Rick saying, well, it's kind of sword and sorcery. And he said, okay. Michael saying, yeah, I'm liking these rewrites. And fi- suddenly I thought, okay, I might be able to do this. I might be able to do this. And he said that was a strong script compared to something like Sarek. The, the amount of work wasn't anything the same one. But um, that was his first one. And he said, somewhere I have those pages buried in my house somewhere, and I'll leave that as a legacy to my children. Yeah, he's kidding. <laughs> this, and this was 93. He already had – you know, that was already the IRA. 
He said, so sell it, sell it. They'll still be doing conventions in the year 2121. <laughs> and, you know, we're bearing down on that now that I... We'll see about that. Reading that, yeah. <laughs> so, so he was there, and um, aside from yesterday's Enterprise, which I guess everyone, you know, that contributed to, the only other episode which he's actually credited as a writer is Captain's Holiday. Right. Um which is is interesting because you know then he he comes back next season to do the other Vosh episode and then he brings Vosh or I don't know if it was him or or someone else I actually forgot mm-hmm. to look it up who who does uh, Vosh on Deep Space Nine. Um, so what I mean, how do you see uh, Captain's Holiday as being you know sort of uh, I rub in practice? If that makes any sense? What yeah, it, does yeah. it reflect the the platonic <clears throat> ideal of Iraosity? <laughs> Well, I was just because that's you know he created the character of Vash, who actually he meant to have it pronounced Vash because it was named after a friend of he and his wife's Susan Vash, who was a casting director, and she pronounces her name Vash, but of course in Patrick's Brit it comes out Vash, and that's that's what it got branded, and everyone said bra- uh, Vash after that. So there's your little, there's your little nugget. All right. well, but from, um, from now on, I'll, I'll pronounce it Vash. Yeah, <laughs> just as a yeah. I've always said Vash. And, I, and every time I do it, I'm like, I'm American. I can do that. There you go. Well, they, you're you're on the homage. But uh, I've just, he was very proud of that. He said, Captain's Holiday started off to be a serious black comedy about Picard going to a planet that he used to go to as an ensign, an R&R, where so he had this thing. That means he created uh, Ryza then, right? Uh, yes. Okay. All right. Good. Yes. Good. It was an R&R planet where you basically um, – you test yourself against your deepest fear. It was supposed to be like uh, a dark show. And, uh, and he never taken this test before, and he thought he would test himself against this seven-armed giant or a monster or something. What it turned out in this point in his life that what his fear was that Riker was going to take over as captain and that he uh, – that, that basically that, that all these bizarre things when you're um, uh, getting on the point uh, that he's getting too old to be a captain anymore. So they broke the story. Michael and I'm not doing it justice here, but they broke it. Michael loved it. Uh, Ron loved it. Everybody on the staff loved it. Um, and then he had a meeting with Gene, and he had a meeting with Pat. And Gene was still involved. And he had a meeting with Patrick and Rick. And the bottom line from everybody, starting with Gene, was the captain has no fears. He has no doubts about himself. They can't do the episode. No one oh can <laughs> it. And he and he got. A, he says I got a whole lecture from Gene about how the captain is John Wayne. He doesn't have any doubts. And he left that behind years ago. He is who he is, and he's satisfied. And Patrick took him out and said, I will not do this episode. <laughs> he says, I can just see our side. So I said, guys, I got another idea. <laughs> <laughs> and this was right when Patrick was saying they were kind of rebelling against the, the original series fix of it's stupid for the captain to lead all the away teams or the landing parties. And they came up with the um, – Captain stays behind. Riker leads all the landing teams if it has to be that way. And Patrick was starting to rebel about never getting out of the chair, and the captain should be doing more shooting and screwing. And he said, hey, I can do this. We can get the captain laid. And then it became – he says, then it became about Yamaharon and Horgons and, um, you know, and him reading books like The Sophistry Ethics in the Alternate Universe. And uh, you know, he's laughing about all this stuff. So anyway, so all of that um, – yeah. Oh, Susan Vash was the casting director on Once a Hero. There we go. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So that he, you know, kind of a throwback to that. So anyway, so all of that, um, he just thought it it, it came 
the the Ferengi. He got to make the Ferengi not just bland comic relief, which in fact was that Ferengi was played by uh, Max Grudenchik, right? Later oh, yeah. on to be Rob. Yeah. And Chip Chalmers um, got it. Chip Chalmers, I just remember later on directed um, – because I finally met him in the flesh, uh, directed "Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite," which is kind of a tongue-in-cheek, you know. So um, anyway, so he got out of the third. You know, he, that was it, and he survived. He helped save Michael's hide there, and then said, oh, "This has been too rough for me." And he got a development deal, and, um, and then he got cu- then he got called in to save uh, Cupid with the Vosh character. And Michael said, "Can you just come in and do a rewrite on this?" And he jumped in and did that. So and, uh, okay, because yeah. that, that was something that I was gonna, you know, ask about. You know, after leaving in season three, it sounds like throughout all of this, his relationship with Pillar was always pretty good. Oh no, they were old buddies. They yeah, were old buddies. they were the kind of. In fact, Michael told me this story that I, I have in the companion. But, you know, flash forward to um, Insurrection, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, you know DS 9s wind. They're winding down, but they're such old. You know, two AM dorm room buddies. Not, I don't mean they went to school together, but I mean they've got that kind of relationship. Right. <clears throat> that, and if this book ever gets published, but I think I included a mention of this. There's one point where Michael's tortured route on everybody keeps changing and jerking around what he's doing with the script. And at one point, he thinks he's got everything settled, and he takes it and he lets Ira read it. And Michael said, uh, uh, "You know," he says. So I let him read it, and and one day. He comes over to my office, takes off his glasses. He goes, and when Ira takes off his glasses, you know something's. <laughs> and he says, Ira looks at me and says, Mikey, Mikey, Mikey. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh, I knew. But that's the kind of relationship they had where they could, like, eh, on the stuff on the side. And, and so, yeah. So he said, no way am I ever going to do Star Trek again. That was just too rough. And they all got burned. But when DS9 got started, they had this relationship where it's like Michael's like, okay, Ira, you've got to come work on this show. No, no, no way, Mike. He says he took him to a Dodgers game. You know, Michael's a big, big fan of Dodgers game. Yeah. And he said, basically, he, he reeled him in. He's like, no, Michael, you know, I'm not doing any more Star Trek. I, I got burned. He goes, no, no, no. You'll love this show. It's going to be dark and shadowy and edgy. And here's the Bible. And, but, it, you know, he basically is like, well, okay. And, and you'll be able to, you know, and you'll be second in line and you'll be the, you know, after I step away in a couple of years, you'll be the showrunner and da 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 da. da. And he, but he had to talk him into it. He had to tell him it would be nothing at all <laughs> like his experience on, even though Next Gen itself, you know, had settled down by then and was humming along, singing a song and was like the whale oiled machine, you know, and Jerry and Michael and Ron mm-hmm. and Renee and all. Even though everything was rosy by then, it was fifth, sixth season. Um, so he got Iron board early to come over to DS9. Yeah, g- going back a little bit, that that uh, quote you know from from Pillar, you know, where he, he talks about uh, how he knew he was in trouble when when Ira took off his glasses. I, I remember reading that before and just thinking, like, that is such a wonderful, you know, little. I, I don't know if if you can credit Pillar's writing or whatever, but it's just a, such a great character trait there, you know, and the idea that like oh, I re- no. Ira Stephen Bear would make a good <clears throat> character for a fictionalized version. I you know of, I, a, of a of a TV show. Tell tell, yeah. me, tell yeah. me if you think this is this is something which I being thought, Ira Bear. There's your new yeah. I I would watch that show. John Malkovich, yeah. Every day. Honestly, though, I would. It might be a little bit hard to believe. 
I mean, blue beard, always wearing colored glasses. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's kind of crazy. People would think they was made up. This is something which I've always thought. And tell me if I'm way off base here, but if, you are. I, I take it you've you've seen Battlestar Galactica, Larry, or not? Uh, yeah, I have. No, I've watched the first two seasons. And I keep meaning to finish, and I didn't watch it at the time. Okay, but, uh, so, so you haven't seen. But I've read and I've yet. seen seen did it. Yeah, okay. and I've watched it. But I know the general. I I am. <clears throat> in see, it's not he doesn't show up until the end of season three. But there's a character played by Mark Shepard, Romo Lampkin, and he always wears sunglasses, which are very similar to Ira's. And then there's one scene where, or, or when he goes into court, he takes them off. And I always thought, like, that's got to be, that's got to be a reference. I mean, he that like more to, uh... must have been, you know thinking of of bear when he was writing that character right? he has I, said that he was he has he said that he was i know he said that he's like oh the sunglasses are weird but iris Stephen bear does it well i, I don't think i don't think that, he said but, i based this particular trait yeah. on this weird thing that ira bear does but he definitely said like i have this idea that he always wears glasses and i thought i know a dude who does that yeah maybe nobody else in the world does that <laughs> But I at least know one person. I at least who know does. one guy. Yeah, but when he when he takes off his glasses when he goes into court, I kept on thinking about that that pillar quote. Yeah, that would be a good trait for a fictional hitman to have. Yeah, yeah. So, and Ira would love that too. Can he be a hitman who sings lounge? Listen, yes. To, you know. Yes. Keep making suggestions. They're all going in. <laughs> he's a, a hitman by day and a lounge singer by night. Definitely. So also the the whole thing about Fixes him scripts on the weekend <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah. definitely going in yeah yeah so also the whole thing about uh, Pillar taking him to a Dodgers game to pitch him Deep Space Nine I remember hearing that too and now because of that because of that little story anytime I'm watching a Dodgers game I always look in the background I'm just hoping to see Iris Stephen Bear. But anyway, um, I find well, that somebody is, you know, Ira, I mean, uh, uh, Michael had season tickets and, and you know, in baseball, it's one of those sports where they like 40,000, excuse me, 47,000 games a year. <laughs> and it's just you... over at the, it's just like, you know, a 20, it, unless the traffic is horrible, it's like 20, 25 minutes from Paramount. So anyway, but they were always very nice about passing his, you know, unless it's a huge game or something special is going on, he had three or four tickets and he'd pass them around, you know, the assistants and everybody and and um, Janet and I were beneficiaries, you know, two or three, four times of Michael, you know, after the shows were, after he was not um, hands-on with the shows, he was consulting and working on other things, he was still there on the lot and all that, so, um, yeah, and I remember her, his, he had good seats right behind home plate, just in that first section down low, so um, I have I have fond memories of of Michael and the Dodgers. Even though I didn't like ever go to a game with him, mm-hmm. I just uh, benefited from his uh, generosity there, just because he was a huge huge baseball fan, and um, and the shows show it. So yeah, that's we cool. never got football, and football was an abortive try in Star Trek, and not till Enterprise. But that's okay. They got the good. That's one. a separate. Story. They, they got the baseball. I know that Max doesn't appreciate this at all, but it's I, not that I don't appreciate it. It's that I detest it. <clears throat> okay, but I, I love I love the presence of baseball in Star Trek, especially Deep Space Nine. And when I saw um, Ira at the convention, I had him sign a baseball for me. Mm-hmm. I like I like the clandestine nature of like him selling Ira Bear on this new show in public in a public place. It's very the conversation. It, it is <laughs> right. It is, and, and again, that's just sort of that that vivid. Uh, I, I I love this stuff, but yeah, the Manchurian showrunner. So okay, so he comes on, and it sounds like, and this is something which I, I was not aware of, but based on what you're saying, that 
like Pillar was working things out a couple years in advance, and he kind of always had the intention of handing it off to Bear when he left. Well, it's kind of it's not so much a Michael thing. And by the way, I want to go back to one thing on Cupid. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That you, all, you guys, because I was just I was remembering this that um, he got called in to help save, but it was early on, and uh, he was actually working on a, a very short-lived show called Hickok and Cody. <laughs> about Wild Bill Hickok and Buffalo Bill in New York in 1873, uh, getting involved with Boss Tweed. And um, they were working on it, and uh, it got yanked. So he was in the middle of that and said, yeah, I've got time to do this. And originally, Cupid was going to be a, a triangle of Picard and Q and Vosh on the ship. And, and Ira came in and said, you can't do that. It'll make Picard look like an idiot. And, and he was the one... Uh, he said, only thing I can think off the top of my head is some weird King Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot thing, but I don't know how to make that work. And then Michael said, why don't we do Robin Hood? And, uh, and it was the big year for the Robin Hood movies. And uh, he said, I can do Robin Hood in my sleep. And um, so that's how Cupid came to be. So, bang, there you go. Cool. So that was his, his, uh, his last mm-hmm. um, association with Star Trek up until... Uh, well, I guess it would have been two or three years later when uh, Deep Space Nine starts, and he's there from the beginning. Uh, and and Pillar, you said, I mean, like it sounds like Pillar sort of had the idea to to, you know, have him lined up to be his successor. Well, the- I mean, what I started to say was uh, that's kind of the DNA of writing, yeah, especially if you have a good feeling about things. If you're a showrunner. And sometimes people handle this well, sometimes they don't. But the whole idea is to – in Hollywood, you're all, if you're in a creative thing and you're able to have some success, you know, first you've got to sort of get, get noticed and get hired. Whatever you're, you're acting or directing or writing or whatever you're doing, you're doing the visual effects. You know, survive long enough on your cookies and, and crackers and water diet to get noticed and get hired and then get stable. And then if you can have some success – you you start planning the next one. It's like the old thing about you know you never look for a job when you don't have you always look for a job when you still have one. So you're planning ahead, and and that's kind of a tendency. If you're a writer, and especially if you're like on staff or a showrunner, you're gonna you're always trying to leverage your clout to uh, you know the, pitch the next pilot. And what are, what are your options and going on? So and plus you always want to have a good wingman. You always have a good number one and number two. And you always want to be able to step aside and be able to work on something during pilot season and develop. You you, you don't want to give up your day job in the way they do up residual. So this is that's an industry wide thing. So yeah, so just knowing that at some point down the road, not set in stone, but at some point down the road he would want to go on to the next thing, but would still know that however long a show ran, if you're the co creator, you don't want the thing you co-created to suck after four or five years, you know, fall into bad hands. And there's there's a history of shows where the creator gets it launched, it goes two or three years, and especially if it's what's that is if it's a success, and then it's on coasting along, and somewhere about the fourth or fifth or sixth season, maybe um, it gets you know it gets a little uh, stale, and they bring the creator back. I think Botchko did that on L.A. Law. I mean, I was just reading about mm-hmm. this the other day, not to totally go back to the '80s, and there's probably been a lot of other examples since then. So. And sometimes the creator comes back and they can't save it. I mean, maybe 
you know, here uh, for some reason, Heroes comes to mind. But a lot of shows get out of the gate; they're really popular. They go a year or two, third, fourth season, they get a little dormant. If you go and it's look, you look and you see, well, the creator, the original showrunner and creator, stepped away to go work on other things, left it in good hands, and it went a little stale. And sometimes they jump back in and save it, and sometimes they jump back in and they don't. So. To say that, you know, that's kind of what Michael was thinking about with Ira. And also knowing uh, Ira's just dark side and sense of humor, um, that's kind of what they wanted to do with DS9 because it was all – DS9 was all about, hey, we're not the happy-dappy enterprise with carpet up the walls and bright, shiny scenes, you know, and, and – um, uh, here's how we'll get drama into the shows without spoiling Gene's perfect humanity. We'll just have it – the drama comes from everybody else. You know, in friction. So um, he thought I would be perfect for it and, it, and it was a good fit after he got him over the hump and a couple of Dodger dogs. And uh, <laughs> well, so, and, so yeah. So just, to, what I'm saying is to say that it's not like it was some nefarious, right. crafted evil for future fail telling. That's kind of what all writers do when they're in that position. Yeah. So I mean, and, and that is kind of an interesting thing too. Just sort of like building on that and getting a little outside of the Star Trek realm here. But if you look at all of the shows that that Ira has worked on, he hasn't personally created any of them. He's been there from from the beginning for a lot of them. But like you know, forty four hundred was by uh, Scott Peters and and uh, Renee. Is it Echeveria or Echeveria? I never Echeveria. know. Echeveria. Uh-huh. You know, and, and uh, you know, stuff like that. And I, I always found that to be really interesting about him is that, you know, for one thing, it seems like he doesn't have, like, that ego that says, like, I have to do something that I made myself. But then also the idea that everyone else in town sort of knows that, you know, this is the guy who can successfully run your, your show, you know? Mm-hmm. It's kind of a it's a really weird thing to have on your card. I can run your show. Yeah. And the idea that people play it multiple times it's it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a fixer or I'm a, yeah. or or if your show's you know dipping or a little in trouble or needs a pick me up or whatever. But then there's there's people who are script doctors who don't ever you don't know them from anything on but they come in and they fix there's a big project, you know, especially a, a, something that's got a lot of writing on it, and it's got a lot of attention. And they keep having good writers take a crack at it, and people make a, you know, two, and they're spending money for people to take a pass, and nobody's going to get credit, you know, and how they finally do the final credits or whatever. And somebody comes in and they hire out as a script doctor, and they come in and they they make fixes that finally work, and they're they're nobody you've ever heard of. But yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying that's what Ira does, but no. I mean, no, there's yeah. people like that that do that too. So it's yeah. interesting. Now it's, I'm visualizing the, the the fictionalized version of this: the hitman who wears colored glasses and has a weird colored beard, yeah. who's also a script doctor. Somehow that doesn't even seem implausible. <laughs> yeah, that's probably actually happening. That's right now. probably that's those. That's already a guy. <laughs> yeah. Where do you think I'm Iron a script Man's... doctor, not a hitman? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely, that's not what he does. I mean, it sounds like with him, it's more of a case of like. I've created a show, and for whatever reason, I can't do it myself. So here, you you do this. You make this your own. And I mean, he does seem to make it his own. I, like each show that he does feels like his show. But uh, that's yeah, that's there's def- really you can definitely draw a connective thread between a lot of the shows that he's worked on. Oh yeah, for sure. But like, amazingly enough, I think that some of that is like some sort of preconscious association. Like Ira would know how to do. This. Well, surely that's what happened on 4400, yeah. right? 4400, I think, is, is one where 
like he he had to make in that show thinking I am definitely not running this. I am definitely getting out of bear to run this. Well, that was always a weird this thing. This is going to be so hard. I mean, because at the time, Echeverria was running someone else's show. Yes. And he kept on running that show and let someone else run the show that he had created. But think about 4400. There's like a million characters. I think Renee was on Medium. <laughs> he was on Medium, yeah. right, yeah. exactly. Medium had three characters. I guess so. I, I, I mean, I, I don't understand. Like thirty people. I don't understand the the politics or the what creative decisions that are made in Hollywood. But I, that was one which always stood out to me as being rather bizarre. But regardless, anyway. So he's on Deep Space Nine. Uh, after a couple years, um, Pillar leaves to do Voyager, essentially. And we say the term is they say step back. He steps back. <laughs> he steps back. <laughs> he steps back to do Voyager. And um, but still writing notes, <laughs> still still reading all the scripts and doing notes and weighing in when he thinks he needs to. Right, but yep. but Bear is running the the day to day operations uh, of the show. Oh, and Michael also left to uh, do the show Legend. Right, to right. create and start that, which didn't get a firm. Um, interesting little exercise, but uh, didn't get a firm. Didn't get a good shake from UPN. It's probably it was like the longer UPN was on, the crappier the shows got. That was like the first or second year of UPN. Yeah, yeah. Miss well, that's, this is the first one that I have no memory of. Yeah, I know. We've, we've talked about Legend before, and Max, has Max, who has like an encyclopedic knowledge of 80s and 90s television, has no idea what Legend Apparently, is. Apparently, I've forgotten again. Which is very strange. It was, uh, <laughs> it was um, um, Richard oh God, Dean Anderson and John, yeah, Richard Anderson and John, and John Delancey. Delancey. It was a, basically a West. sci-fi western. With Richard Dean Anderson. And John it was Lines. Richard Dean Anderson as a is a writer from the East who would write incredible tales about himself that were huger than real life, and people thought he was this great explorer, adventurer, science guy, and um, yeah, and he was He built himself up into it, and he came across John Delancey, who was kind of a Nicholas Tesla kind of character, who was like the science brain, who was kind of doing the wild, wild westy, Briscoe County ish. You know, a steampunk. It was it, that would have been steampunk before steampunk was cool. Yeah. On top of everything else, so MacGyver meets Q. Well, yeah, not not John Delancey playing the the James Bond Q in yes. the past. Yes, well, of course not. <laughs> Don't think yeah, he's playing even, Q, just a different Q. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was badly marketed, and uh, they never t- – they almost never – it was right after Voyager, and they never would like – they never spotlighted John Delancey in any of the advertising, even on UPN, even like in and off after Voyager. It was like so badly um, – anyway, and it, and it was getting better as it went along. They were tinkering with it and all that, but it died after 13. They didn't get mm-hmm. – <laughs> they could have so used that later on. It's like UPN, what were you – Thinking there was a female lead in there too somewhere, but um, anyway, it was a it was just a good uh, it was a really fun. Show. I wish it was available somewhere where people could. Uh, yeah, Michael yeah. was very proud of it. But um, anyway, so he came back after that ended and kind of jumped into the Voyager mix and the DS9 mix again after he after it didn't go. But anyway, so yeah, so but yeah, for basically from the third season on. In fact, I remember talking to Ira at the end of, and I should just as a personal note. That this interview I was talking about from '93 was the first time I came out to LA, still living in Oklahoma, but I came out to LA to work on the next edition of the books, you know, to update and talk to people live instead of doing it in a rush over the phone in mm. three months or six months. And um, I walked into Iris, and he had just gotten, in his opinion, and probably true, had just been screwed over by another writer who had. Uh, 
done a big piece on on um, DS9 getting started, who he felt – I never read the original piece he's talking about. But basically he felt like he had been misquoted and taken out of context, and he was just livid about it and was not in a mood to trust writers. He didn't know me from Adam. You know, I'm doing a book on Next Generation. He's working on DS9, so everything about Next Generation is not only an old memory, it's from the troubled third season. <laughs> you know, where he still and none of those guys wanted to talk, you know, Melinda Snodgrass would not talk about third season for ages and and Hans and Ricky would not talk about the third season for ages. So, um on a tape recorder, much less on camera. So, um it's like the way a lot of them felt about the first season that were around on Next Gen. So I walked so into exciting. his room and everything's like, <laughs> hi, I'm the idiot from – you know, I'm the humble, silly guy from Oklahoma working on this book. But it's a licensed canon book and, uh, and I plopped down and, and uh, he's like, you're not going to fuck me over, are you? I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like right out of the gate. <laughs> and he's like, I just – and he like kind of vomited all over me about you know, how this just happened and this just happened. And, blah, 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 and I'm like – no, and it's like, and, but nobody knew me from Adam. The the first edition had come out, but I'd barely talked to anybody, and I really hadn't made that many. Still hadn't made that many contacts. I was in the middle of doing that for the first time, and I was like, no, no, I'm I'm a trustworthy, honest guy, and I always know you're in context, and I always know when something's off the record and not, and you know, blah blah blah. And I'm an honest guy, and I won't BS anything or vanilla anything, but I won't go there if it's a, anyway. So I, you know, I safe to say I won I were over. That's so yeah. buddy cop movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love that scene. That's so perfect. I guess it's kind of like, uh, yeah, he took from our first meeting is what inspired uh, O'Brien and Bashir. How about oh God! That's <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Okay, so so we're we're up. He's he's now he's he's running Deep Space Nine. Yeah, 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 and they're okay. moving forward with developing the. Deba- I bet I remember the next time we really sat down and talked, it was it was to wrap up some TNG stuff. But I was also going. I need to keep talking to everybody every year. And I was doing that, and I didn't talk to him live the first couple of years at DS9, but I talked to him at the very end of the second season where they had first popped in the Jim Hadar, and it was it was right where they were going to call the episode The Dominion, but there was a movie that had just come out <laughs> called Dominion, and so they had to they all Paramount made him change the title of the episode from The Dominion to The Jim Hadar. <laughs> But he was, he's the, I was, may be the first person he said, oh, this is going to be so cool. We're going to unveil it. And what you find out is the, the Jem'Hadar aren't the Dominion. They're just one of the – he basically told me the, 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 the three-legged stool of the Dominion with the Vorta and the founders and the you – know, and said, this is where we're going next year. And, and you know, we were going to reveal at the end of the – the last show is going to reveal that Odo was a founder. And Michael said, why do that? Why start it off now and then have Odo be in agony the whole time? <laughs> that their new enemies are his people. And yeah. they're like, oh, okay, that's great. So Michael was still having an impact. But that's – the next time I talked to Ira, that's where things were. And yeah, he was, he was very much you know, plotting and planning um, DS9, and they were about to welcome Ron and Renee over to the show from, as T- Next Generation ended. And, uh, um, and he was all very, very gung-ho ganged up about it, about third season. And then I remember – I do have one, one – uh, when Voyager started, I have a – Memory of Ira also from the time. Oh, go ahead. Go, go, go ahead. that just, sounds awesome. I just remember they had the um, since my wife was working on Voyager then um, in the script department. She was assistant script coordinator, <clears throat> and we were at the cast and crew screening at the Paramount Theater there on the lot, and it was a big hoo ha. Of course, this was it was kind of sad for DS Nine. D- Ira would say this, but at the time I, I was starting to realize it too. Uh, DS Nine was always like the middle child. 
even though there were four series. Because Next Gen was the risky, stumbly pioneer that exploded in popularity and set up everything after that was to come. Yeah. You know, not just one, but two sequel spinoffs. And TNG was the one that redid the syndicate. It reinvented one-hour dramas and syndication and made science leg- – and all the boom of genre shows that came in the 90s and the aughts all stems from Next Generation, right? So there's all that hugeness. And at the beginning, DS9 – I mean I remember Next Generation, like Marina would gripe about how they had uh, Enemy Mine. Starship Mine? Not, uh, Starship Mine, Yes. Starship Mine is the terrorist. Die Hard of the Ship. Enemy yeah, Mine is one of Lou Gossett Jr. Yeah, Saddle. <laughs> Tim Russ is the terrorist. Yeah. 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 They, they talk about how the funny scene with, with uh, Hutchinson was supposed to be a banquet and how the only people at this banquet are the regular cast, him, and a couple of the uh, aliens who are supposed to be the terrorists. It's like there's nobody else at the reception. <laughs> and she's griping because DS9, they're funneling money. Over to DS9 so they can put extras on the promenade and make it big and splashy and get DS9 off to a big start. And there was a time there when it's like all of a sudden the, DS, the TNG guys at the height of their popularity were feeling kind of like cheaped out on because they were so busy launching DS9 and being impressive. And, oh, look at the scope and the dark and the gritty and it's galaxy spanning and, you know, and, our, and we've got all these different aliens and makeups from all over the place crossroading here. And it's like, you know, it's like uh, Rick's and Casablanca. You know, it corks, and yeah. and they were feeling left out. But within a year or two, that quickly changed because all of a sudden, you know, DS9 was a syndicated show like TNG. And it's kind of like, well, if you're not the first guy to pioneer something, you quickly become the second because two years into DS9, they not only launch and, – and now this is all kind of interesting and moot because it's, they're just all you know DVDs and Blu-rays in a box on the shelf to people now yeah. or, or it's another role on your Netflix screen. But in the day, Voyager was this huge thing because it was, it was a network show. It's the first Star Trek to be on a network since the original series because the first two were just syndicated. You know? yeah. And it's not only on a network. It's the flagship of the network. So there was a, all this buzz and all that. And all of a sudden, DS9 was kind of like the, yeah, like cold leftovers of next generation kind of. Which is a little bit the vibe of why, you know, Rick was very much there and talking, but really why their attention was on Voyager and then the movies as they came along. And why Ira found this niche of being able to kind of eventually evolve and pushing the envelope on DS9 to do more what he what they wanted to do. But at the time, when Voyager launched and they had the pilot screening, when Caretaker had the big cast and crew screening on the lot and everybody was, ooh, that's so cr-. And it was. It was an incredible pilot. And the DS9 emissary was huge, and it was like – then Caretaker was huge, and they all just were getting bigger and bigger, and it was like every two years, bang, bang, there's going to be a new Star Trek series every, <laughs> every two or three years. This is amazing. These are heady times. And I, yeah. I came out of the screening, and everybody was like hopping around, and they had like tables and, and drinks and, you know, and cheap uh, finger food set up for people to come out of the theater out in the lobby area. And I was walking by, and I saw – and Ira was like leaning up on a, high, a little round high table kind of had his head down and they had just shot um uh is it future tense the 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 bell riots yeah, yeah. future tense and you know and ira was very big on that show about uh everybody always loves to talk about uh jeans uh, uh you know the perfect world of 23rd 24th century earth and uh and how wonderful humanity is and and uh and how they this is, but this is twenty you know this is nineteen ninety nine this is or nineteen ninety five ninety six how the hell did we get there 
No one ever talks and start, and we know we had the eugenics wars. We know we had you know somewhere, but how the hell did we get from today with all our crap we still have? How did we make the leap to perfect world where they have replicators that make money obsolete? You know, how did we get there? And he really wanted to show do a show that showed one of the turning points of getting to Gene's perfect future, Earth perfect future, and so that's where that two-parter came from was supposed to be one of the touchstones of that and they had just filmed it and he was very proud and it was a big show scope and they had extras and they were out on the new york streets filming you know and all that but it's like they were just syndicated and it was going to get shown around the country and people were going to love it but the ds9 ratings were kind of holding steady and meanwhile voyager was grabbing the spotlight and oh woman captain and sally ride was at the premiere and you know all this stuff and he was just kind of feeling a little down and I said, you know, I basically said, hey, Ira, because I walked over and watched him film some of the stuff on the New York streets. And he was like, hey. And he's like, you know, he says, this is great. It's great that this show is getting, the Voyager is getting all this attention. He says, but we're just, we're just falling through the cracks. No one's paying any, like, we're not going to get any attention. And he wasn't saying that, like, throwing a tantrum. He was just kind of being like, you know, like, I wish we could share some of this attention because we're putting so much. As he would say in his words, we're, you know, we're busting our goddamn butts to do this show the best way we can and do a great show. And I really felt strongly about this two-parter, and it's not going to be able to get one-third the promotion and attention that the, you know, the Voyager Splash does. Which, on one hand, it's a new show launching, and it is on a network, and it is a woman captain, and yet all that stuff going for Voyager. But I just remember him being really down, and it's the first time I heard him say something that he said several times over the years is, you know, one day – one day, when we're not the middle child, we're not the stepchild, people are going to go, holy crap, look at DS9. He says, and all the stuff we did is going to get – he says, it won't be right now, the way this is playing out. You know, He's not sour grapes. Good luck to everybody. You know, may Voyager go you know, 100 years. But he said, but what we're doing on DS9 is not going to get due until years from now. And, you know, and this is before 9-11 mm-hmm. and the country turned dark. So, so yeah, and I remember at the end of DS9, we were kind of having our, our not goodbye, but our last DS9 fresh interview, and he said, said, said the same thing. It's going to be years before this show is appreciated. And I go to cons now, and I do my little poll of everybody, what, what show brought you into the Star Trek family, and, and what, um, what's your favorite, even after you had your first. And the one show that changes from what brought you into Star Trek to what's your favorite of the series the hands – not a huge amount because Next Generation and Original Series are always the leaders there. Mm-hmm. But the one that goes from 0 to 60 you know, or 0 to 15 hands is DS9. And it's like it's right because between Netflix and the DVDs and hopefully you know, sooner than later Blu-rays, um, it's already on the way. Of good, more and more people are finding DS9 you know, and, and the fact that it got – it broke the mold of being a standalone that all the syndicated – uh, stations used to demand that all the shows be standalone and not be shown in order, not have to be shown in an order. Mm. And DS9, you know, they kept they had those th- two or three times of having longer and longer arcs that were really serialized. And now, I mean, and that still gets criticized. People now, you know, uh, at the time, people would say it's too late for me to jump into DS9 and watch it because I've missed the first nineteen, you know, Dominion War shows, and I can't jump in now. And that was a factor then, and maybe maybe future, but that sure became a trend, you know, between Lost and and well, Galactica, and, yeah. and especially Lost, and one of the new fads of TV. Because now it's all—it's not about watching a show on daily stripping on a syndication market. It's about everybody running down and buying their 
their Blu-ray box or their DVD season box. And when you do that and you binge watch, no one cares. You know, <laughs> so anyway, just you know, and 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 now the last time or two we we've talked, it's always uh, you know, it's finally it's people are finding DS still still finding DS nine. And going, holy crap! Why didn't I watch this already? And holy crap, they did this in the nineties. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, it's definitely lot, true. A lot of the a lot of the energy of that seeped into the show, and the idea of nobody's paying any attention to us. That's mm-hmm. definitely ended up on screen. But the idea that they're doing this stuff in obscurity, and they're doing a really good job, and it's really important. And what really matters is what you leave behind. I mean, come on, Deep Space Nine is what you leave behind. Yeah. And it's amazing. It is. Yeah. It is. So, I mean, I, I, I agree with it's that. It's so it, meta. It is. <laughs> <clears throat> and and I think that, you know, I loved seasons one and two. You know, there are people who would be like, eh, you know, the first couple seasons of Deep Space Nine were a little iffy. That's that's ridiculous. I think the first two seasons of Deep Space Nine were, were excellent. But but starting but you, with season but three. But if you do the nerd well, they, thing you know and judge two it things. by the other things. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say real, real quick, two things. One, they were they were finding their way. And for some reason, the prescription for all Star Treks is they're granted that. But they're nothing compared to the first two seasons of Next Generation. Oh, I mean, yes. Oh, you know, that's they so were really right. wobbly. Right. And they had, you know, compared – and part of that is – Next Gen had, in, in defense of Next Generation, they had a horrible revolving door of writers and figuring things out and Gene trying to figure – because that was the one that was like, it's been 30 years now. What are we going to do? And they were really you know, trying to find their way as a mood and a you know, system and the process of getting it done. Not the, not the production end so much, although that got better too, but the writing, the core thing of it. Yeah. And DS9, they were more about finding the format for the show, honing it, than they were about – Making sure you know the the writing staff was coherent because mm-hmm. everybody was pretty much on board about where they wanted to get to. It was just finding it, and I know Michael was upset that after the big splash of the pilot of carriage of uh, emissary that they went so over budget that they made a lot of the shows cheap you know a lot of everybody loves to laugh about um move along home, but it got sl- they they had a lot more sets and a lot more scenes were done, and it got slashed in budget at the last minute to help because of the money that, that the pilot went over on. Mm. So you know they laugh about uh, Alamarine left and the girl and you know yeah. how that show went, I but agree. he was very down about how the the whole first season wound up being claustrophobic and on the station and the meme about well DS Nine doesn't go anywhere it's not a ship show and how they tried to break out with the the trilogy at the beginning of season two at the same time people but like, all that was weighing it down and yeah. and. Uh, Anyway, anyway, that's you know that was what they were they were coming with, and so where they were able to take it from, bring in the Defiant, and then open it up and have Worf come in, and all these things that were seen as fixes along the way, you know, did make the show better. But to say that the first two seasons aren't worth watching is there's clinkers, but but yeah. there's incredible shows the first two years. The yeah, first it, first two years. It's a very nerdy criticism to say that because I mean it's it's essentially saying like oh Return of the Jedi sucks. I mean, like it's better than most movies, right? But it's mm-hmm. not as good as Empire. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, even with that, even though I, I do love the first two seasons of Deep Space Nine, I mean, it really does step it up to another gear in season three when when Bear, you know, I think takes takes over completely, and it just keeps on getting better. If you ask me, every season is better than the last, and uh, well, it has it has the the most impressive improvement arc. Yeah. Of any of the of the series, yeah, I mean, they a, all amazing they curve. all got better, but Deep Space Nine's curve, like it hits infinity <laughs> by the end. Yeah, 
Like, oh, sure. You crazy. say that now. Where were you in 1995? Trying oh, to we, figure we, we out had, when it was on. We, we, we had the disadvantage <laughs> of living in Chicago. So the, uh, yeah. the syndication thing really was bad here. because If you wanted to watch Deep Space Nine, you had to camp out in front of your TV. And I mean camp. <laughs> Because you did not know when it was going to come on. It was on the same network as the Chicago Cubs baseball games. Mm -hmm. And because of that, the time slot was not at all consistent. And it was really, it really was a challenge just to find the show in the later years. But uh, I've said on many. And the Firefly fans would all say, boo hoo on you. You know, I'm so sorry your show went seven years because you couldn't find it first on Baseball Channel. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, all, I'm all of these people. And, and my, my, my Firefly fan in me thinks, like, yeah, I know it was canceled. That's terrible. But think about how long you were frustrated with Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Waiting up till three in the morning when you had school the next day. But regardless, <laughs> so I, I think I think at least both Max and I are in agreement that you know Deep Space Nine, especially the Iris Stephen Barriers, are probably the the finest of all Star Trek. Maybe maybe in the original series, I don't know. That's that's what I say. well. If you yeah. want to cherry pick individual episodes, you could you could do anything you wanted. But, but as 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 a, whole, as a season, as a series, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and I don't, I and don't know. And you know what? And, and something beyond the writing, because the upper producers had a hand in this. That the cast that they, you know, they, they oh, I yeah. didn't. Well, he may have been a little bit on the cast incisions, but beyond even the regulars, that guest cast, the show that didn't go anywhere. The upside of that was that they had they stayed with the same people time after time. And by the time it's over, I mean they used to talk about having, you could name. 30 to 40 characters that had been on more than once, much right. less the really like the Garax and the Daymars right. and the Ducats that had been around for eight and, you know, and Rom and uh, on down, the, you know, the, that weren't in, in Nog, that weren't regulars, that weren't in those opening seven or eight slots, but who were may, might as well have been regulars because yeah, they felt like they were there all the time. For and sure. that show had the most of any trek because they were at that station and it did have people and it, you know, they did. They did uh, inhabit the same area of space, and and um, yeah, that was that cast was incredible, yes. uh, and the talent and the depth that they had, the people that were you know, and then by the time you have Louise Fletcher, I mean yeah. you know, <laughs> right, um, and, and on they, and on, they, they, yeah. So we're all in agreement that that Iris Stephen Bear's work on Star Trek is amazing. Yes, okay, cool. <laughs> I think amazing doesn't have enough syllables. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> So, so Larry, now you're, you've got a million things going on as usual. We talked about Star Trek continues at the front, um, but you've also got uh, the, your stellar cartography book coming out uh, in December, correct? Yes, yes. And so anybody that's listening to this one, and especially if you're listening to the IRA topic, uh, th there's been a lot of publicity out about it. I've talked about it often. Um, you can pre-order it. it it's uh, coming from Amazon from 47 North. And after December fourth or after the third it's actually released and you can buy it in stores and you can get it online anywhere but for right now still it's a pre-order at amazon and even the overseas amazon uk and some of the others uh if you get it now and pre-order it actually is kind of a social media barometer it ticks up uh, we're, you know i don't know if you've noticed this but there's been kind of a rebirth of star trek nonfiction, and not even just reference stuff yeah. but uh what I used to call the gap fillers, the actual in-universe um, things that create new – not creating new canon, but creating gap-filling canon uh, like we used to do when there wasn't, we weren't shows on. And so I was really thrilled to – after I kind of unbent my brain after being a, a canon you know, guardian for years, 
working on the magazine and on the, the guardian of the canon. The, well, no, wait, wait, wait. I'm not. I don't. There's a lot of us that wear that crown. It's not like I'm the green guy at the gates in the Oz. But after being one of those people, it was. I had to be kicked a couple of times um, <laughs> by my friend John at CVS about no limber up, you know, invent some stuff. And uh, the 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 proudest thing. Speaking of Ira and the Dominion War and DS9, the proudest thing was even more so than uh, Jeff Mandel in his book, in his Star Maps book that I got to work pieces of, and even more than the guys on the show, even when Mike and Doug uh, did their graphics, um, taking all of this into, into account, um, and people, nobody wanted to touch it before, but having some years to think about it and things settle down, uh, I was one of my proudest things in this is to be able to choreograph the Dominion War uh, map-wise, chart-wise. So um, there's ten fold-out maps. There's alien. There's the cool thing. It's not just a set of star maps. It's modern. It's old. It's there's maps from different alien. You know the major races from different times in history. We had three different artists. Jeff Jeff Mandel did. I call it the National Geographic map, but it's like the big, huge, every crammed-in history map, kind of reminiscent of of. What you wish his book had had that they couldn't do as the format of a book. So yeah, there's these ten maps. They're two by three. They make great posters. If you're a Klingon fan, you'll want to get the Klingon map because there's no English on it. It's translated in the book. Uh, you know, if you're a if you're a Vulcan fan, there's an ancient Vulcan map in it. Uh, if you're a gamer, you want the Alpha and the Beta Quadrant maps to put down with with hexes, which were just a design thing. But I oh think God, it, it'll amazing. it'll work out great for gamers. Uh, put it under plastic and game with it on your hero click ships or whatever you use. Um, and then there's the guidebook, which is not a huge book, but it's got a spread for every map. And in varying degrees, some of them just needed to be be tied together with a single point of view. Uh, and there's a fine art print. If you love maps, if you love cool things that don't scream Star Trek at you and you like the subtle stuff. There's one of these maps that's made intentionally made, meant to be a scale star chart that's also a fine art print by an Andorian artist that's and that's cool. the first yeah. So um, we made up a name and the whole thing is in the guise of I'm a curator at Memory Alpha and these are the top 10 most popularly viewed or downloaded maps from the Memory Alpha archives whether they were originally a, an antiquity piece of hard copy, you know, paper of some kind, or hide, or hide. No, nothing's a hide. Or whether it was, you know, done as a computer, whatever. But we have the uh, we have the Romulan War. We have like a, a, like a two years later educational poster of the Romulan War, and the Dominion War. And um, anyway, a lot of cool stuff. And the book, uh, the Dominion War, and a few other places. I get to massage some canon humps that I that I wish we could figure out, or, or maybe there's been like a long running debate. Or people are just going, I wish somebody would fix this. And since that's one of the things that I've done in my column in the Star Trek magazine and you know, and over, just in general over the years, um, that was cool to do. So anyway, and the early price in this whole beauty is $47.99. I did not come up with that. That was totally a… A, a random thing, quote unquote, from Amazon. So, anyway, everybody, would jump over and grab that if you can. It's it's going to be a hoot, and get, you know, it's a great Christmas gift for um, for any fan. Like I said, four or five different flavors of fans should find something in there. That sounds yeah. pretty cool. I like the yeah. massaging of continuity humps. I should get that and send it to me in high school. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> we've gone I from certainly use it gap filling to gap fixing or whatever. So yeah. Well, yeah, and when. <laughs> When it comes out, you know, we, we would love to, to have you back on the show to talk about both that and um, 
the, the next generation companion because yeah and then is there and do you want to talk about the uh the well, Trekland uh, thing too? Yeah, yeah. Well, Trekland on speaker, if you enjoy – I was talking about some of these interviews. Uh, I need to – in fact, if people have some – I did this two years ago and debuted it at the Vegas convention, the first one. Basically, I've got boxes of these cassette tapes that need to be gotten off cassette before it disintegrates because some of them are going on 20 years old now. Um, and then I thought, well, this would be a great thing to share with people. So I've got chunks of long, you know, not quickie little interviews, not like sound bitey things like you see on entertainment shows. These are like my most of the time, 80, 90 percent of them are sit down at the end of the year when I was talking about. It's my 60, 90, 120 minute sit down, review the whole season interviews with people when they're at their freshest back in the day. So uh, my blog, Trekland. Uh, these are called Trekland on Speaker, and so I'm doing a CD, so I have something for conventions, and I can sign them, and doing them by mail. If you go to LarryNimichuk.com, and you can go to the news page or the uh, what's the latest page, and there's a page for it. So the second one came out last year at Vegas. The first one is just four people that have all passed away. Michael's one of them, Bob Justman, um, uh, Jerry Fleck, who is not a big name to a lot of fans unless you're good credit watcher, but he was an assistant director on uh, Late Next Generation through Enterprise until he died very sadly, very shockingly died one of those heart murmur things, died in his sleep and no one had a clue um, and was much beloved and missed. But he was a great storyteller and he worked with Jonathan on Jonathan's two movies. And there's a chunk here from him talking about uh, <laughs> a side of first contact shooting that you don't... There's bits of it in my book. I did all these for interviews for the book and, and the magazines over the years. But to hear people talk in their own voice is very cool. And Mark, the very first interview I ever did with a celebrity, with a Star Trek person, was Mark Leonard at a con that I taped and when I was still working in news. And it's, there's a piece of it on here, too. And, of course, he's been gone for a while. And then the second one is about All Good Things, which was we're coming up the 20th anniversary. And I, it took me forever to get it going because um, I, di I didn't know what to do with a theme next. So those two are available. If you want to click over and go, and I'll sign or whatever, send them out. They make a good Christmas gift if you've already got stellar cartography. <laughs> and uh, eventually we'll have them online, but for right now, I, like I said, I'm doing the CDs. And there's liner notes. I have, I have a, a trifold panel in because there's a little introduction to each one on the disc and then audio, and then there's uh, info on a panel and, and photography that's all my photography on it. But here's the thing. If you guys – I'm going to start asking people, asking fans. I need a theme for – my third one next year, and I, maybe I'll do more than one a year, but I, I literally have like I could go – I could do a theme about visual effects or I could do about a specific show or an episode or – Showrunners. You know. Showrunners. Um, show yeah, just, just, you're just yeah. trying to make our job easier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. You know, Iris Stephen Barry, yeah, <laughs> Jerry Taylor, you know, I mean yeah. these people would be awesome. Brandon Braga, yep. that would be awesome. That's not a theme. That is a theme. What that's do you a mean? category. That's, I, it's, no, but that's what I'm saying. It's a theme category. <laughs> but yeah, I would. I mean, hey, exactly. you, you, you should you yeah. should you should start doing these things monthly because oh my god. <laughs> well, no, I'd I'd love to, but part of the thing was like I literally couldn't pick. It was like I've got 80 ways to go. Which way should I go? So okay, I've heard your vote, but maybe if some of your listeners, you Definitely. know, tweet me, tweet me uh, at Larry Nimacek. I'm on Twitter and um, Larry Nimacek's Trekland, my Facebook page, my my Trek Facebook page. And um, let me or Larry at LarryNimichuk.com. Email me. That's what's on my site. So I'm I'm always looking for what idea to go with for the next one. So there you go. Corrections. <laughs> Dispelling false beliefs amongst Star Trek fans. Oh, oh, the MythBusters. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I mean, more along the lines of like Rick Berman ruined that episode, but no, he didn't. <laughs> It was, was, it was actually Brent Spiner who wrote that episode. <laughs> he was holding firm against crazy European. Well, that's been the interesting thing about the Enterprise because uh, that's been the newest show that hasn't had – You know, it's taken 20 years to get some of the stuff out about Next Gen and DS9, much less right. Enterprise, and, uh, and to hear them talk about the studio interference that I knew but I just haven't heard it quantified. And the show's been blown up, and we haven't been on anywhere near the regular cycle yeah. of contact you know, that we would when the shows were going and overlapping. So those have been uh, – Rob Burnett and those and Roger Lair are doing a phenomenal job on the doc, and not just because I'm in some of them, but I mean they're doing some incredible job opening up. Um, you know, there's no like I said, there's no jobs to protect, there's no franchise to protect now. People are just wanting to hear the truth and and uh, maybe help set the record straight or add a lot more into it, which is you know what I what I've tried to do too. And what's funny is going back to these tapes and finding a place where somebody said, I can hear Renee especially go, oh, but. You're not going to use that, right? <laughs> <laughs> or somebody yeah. jumps into an office and the tape is just running, or there's a phone call and they take a phone call and the, you know the little cheapy little heart building offices. And uh, anyway, it's just it, it, I, I barely scratched the surface. I really need to get on. I need a I need like a grant to get these done and digitized, and then go back and edit through them. But yeah, um, yeah. and I should mention real quick um, our Geek Nation tour with Terrace. Uh, we're going to do it every other year. Our Los Angeles, to, our Hollywood to Vegas uh, Trek film site tour that we did in um, in 2012, and we're going to do it again next year, the week before uh, the Vegas convention in August. Actually, it'll be late July this year since since that bumped up. But if you want to go to geeknationtours.com and and check out any of his geek tours, his gaming and different military and historic uh, tours, but the Trek tour. Um, you can find it pretty easy, and my name's in the titles, which is kind of cool. But I'm the leader, and he's there with it. And we we are tweaking the path we did this time. We're going to go out to Valley of Fire, where Kirk died, and add that into the mix of things too. So I should mention that because it's holiday time and time to make your plans for next year if you need to set aside cash or vacation days or whatever. So give that a think, everybody. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And uh, be sure to check out all of Larry's stuff. And uh, yeah, you're welcome back anytime you want to come back on our show. Oh, great. Mike and Max, thanks a lot for having me. Well, I know I had fun talking to Larry Nemechek, who's always very interesting and has a lot of weird stuff to say. Yeah, I mean, you know, just just getting that that firsthand uh, info from someone who was there about stuff. You know, I mean, I know a lot of stuff about Iris Stephen Bear. I'm kind of obsessive about it. Kind of is not the word I would use. So if you look next to my TV, that I, I have three baseballs. The first one is a baseball with all the signatures of, of the people who are at my wedding. Mm-hmm. The second is a baseball that they used for the 2005 World Series, which the White Sox won. Okay. And the third is a baseball with Iris Stephen Bear's signature on it. So you can see the importance that I place on Iris Stephen Bear. I put him on a very high pedestal. We've, we've had a lot of fun, but, but the episode is done, and this is not the only thing that we've got going on on Trek FM. Yeah, we got tons of stuff. We got the Ready Room. We got Standard Orbit. We got a, a bunch of stuff. And, and We've got that show too, The Journey, which is about one of the Star Trek series I don't recall the name of. <laughs> Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Rewriting TOS Season 1 with Mark Krishman. This is a show that was an excellent show, let's face it. We, you know, it was, I think, one of the best shows ever made. Certainly the best show at that time. I think the best written show. 
uh, because Gene Roddenberry was so determined that every episode would have a, a strong theme and make a statement. Earl Grey. TNG Season 8. Or, or no, this is it. The Traveler is a Q, and so the Traveler shows up with Wesley, Q shows up and is like, Q, what are you doing here? I go by T now. The Orb. Cisco is Captain versus Commander. I mean, with the war and everything going on, there's a part of him that's really hardened. But at the same time, yeah. when it comes to the people that are around him, whether it's uh, Cassidy, which, you know, the idea that he would forgive Cassidy, I wouldn't see him doing that in the first few seasons. The Ready Room. Ready. But the ending of the episode is Data flashing a flashlight. And I think that's kind of a lame ending. I just wanted to bring <laughs> you. You wanted to say the end of the episode was Data flashing people on the bridge. <laughs> I know. That's also part of Daniel's fanfic number 58. To the journey! The 37's commentary. I had a dream the other day where I met Robert Beltran in a Macy's. And I like totally geek out on him, but I try to say like, oh no, I totally have also know you from your Hispanic and Native American plays. And uh, like I was trying to like BS my way through saying I only know you from Star Trek Voyager. Did it work? Uh, I woke up. Warp 5. Horror on Enterprise. It's not just losing control of yourself. It's the fact that that zombies, even zombie Vulcans, cannot be reasoned with. Some would say that normal Vulcans can't be reasoned (laughs) with, Kate. Commentary, Trek stars. Harlan Ellison recap. Well, I also think it's entirely possible that Harlan Ellison has encountered a lot of people ripping off his stuff because he's actually a prophet. And he just saw the future and thought, that's a good idea for an Outer Limits episode. Literary Treks. Q and Trelane Comics. Kirk is actually doing the, the hands thing that he does, you know, where he's, he's, he's trying to make a point with his hands. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's actually doing it in the comic. It's <laughs> fantastic. It feels just like Kirk. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So uh, check out these shows in order to get on the Daily Trek Talk. We have new shows every day, and you'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zoom. Or you can stream and download files from the website. And uh, just visit trekfm.pd for the podcast directory. Get all the links to the various shows. And they are all worth listening to. Except for ours sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. Before... We'd go. We'd like to ask you to please support our sponsor who makes it possible to bring commentary Trek stars and other shows to you each week. Our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Yeah, if you go to Audible.com, if you can't get enough Iris Stephen Bear elsewhere, which who who can ever get enough Iris Stephen Bear? Well, hopefully himself. Well, I can't. I don't know. It would be kind of crazy if he couldn't get enough of himself. Well, you go to Audible.com. They've got Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, The Legends of the Ferengi, right? Which was a book that uh, he wrote with uh, Robert Hewitt Wolf. Well, what, what's the description of that book? Because I've actually never read this thing. Well, the, the description of, of the book is very strange because it's basically all quotes. Once you have their money, never give it back, which I've heard of. Is one of the rules of acquisition. The, one of the rules of acquisition. I yeah. think it's the, the 47th rule. Um, anything worth doing is worth doing for money. Uh, I believe that's the 47th rule. Um, for centuries, uh, these and other famous Ferengi rules of acquisition have been the guiding principles of the galaxy's most successful entrepreneurs. But the wisdom behind them was not one without a high cost in lives and latinum. 
Now at last, these inspiring tales of avaricious Ferengi wrestling monetary gain from the jaws of poverty are available to the profit-hungry across the galaxy. So I guess it's Ferengi parables. That's what I'm thinking, right? Which and, sounds a lot like the 48 Laws of Power. And, but it's written by – but this would be 47, right? And, and it's written by Iris Stephen Bear. Well, there's, a, there's a rule zero. And Robert, Robert Hewitt Wolf. So that means for sure that it's canon. Yeah, and and who's going to uh, read you the legends of the Ferengi if you get it off of Audible dot com? Uh, Armin Shimmerman. Armin Shimmerman, of course. So two names. The the main Ferengi, the Ferengi. The Armin Shimmerman is the one who defined the Ferengi so, and then fixed it. And now, if you go to Audible dot com, you can <laughs> yes. sign up online and get this book for free. You can yes, you get you get one book free when you sign up for an Audible account account. Audible dot com account. Audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from. That's a huge, humongous number. And new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers, Audible is something for everyone. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic books you've yet to read or read the latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank you and Audible for supporting commentary, Trek stars, and of course, our flagship Trek FM. So that's about it for this week. As always, you can find us uh, on Trek FM, where we do commentary Trek stars, or you can go to commentarytrackstars.com, where we do commentary Trek stars off-topic with our friend Brandon. Yeah. Uh, you can also find me doing Standard Orbit with Drew on uh, Trek FM. You can find us on Twitter at ComTrackStars. Email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. And that's we, a lot of options. It is. So we've given people too many options. <laughs> Just go to Audible. <laughs> and and we will be back next week to talk about Iris Stephen Bear's third show, The Twilight Zone. Yes. Spoilers. We're gonna tell you how Jacob's ladder ends. 